Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofrab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and engineering ethics. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 413. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we have Kent Johnson on the podcast. Kent Johnson is Senior Corporate Advisor for the Religious Freedom and Business Foundation and a management consultant on religious diversity at work. With over 37 years of experience as a senior counsel at Texas Instruments, Kent is a seasoned legal expert who specializes in corporate law, ethics, product liability, antitrust, medical FDA law, and mergers and acquisitions. Since leaving Texas Instruments in 2018, Kent has been helping companies adopt best practices regarding religious diversity and inclusion in the workplace. He is also Stephen's father-in-law, so we really hope this episode goes well. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Kent. Glad to be here, guys. I do think it's funny because I think I mentioned bringing Kent onto the podcast. It's been over a year specifically for this topic, which we're talking about uh, engineering ethics. And I always joke about it or laugh about it because it's just sometimes the people who are closer to you just end up being the hardest to get on. And I don't mean that from Kent's side. I mean that more from my side. <laughs> All it takes is sometimes sending out a text and being like, hey, will you come on the podcast? And I don't know. But we finally made it happen. So thank you, Kent. You bet. I listened to a couple of podcasts earlier and my sense is that this topic is a little bit unusual for you all. Is that right? Well, I can tell you for sure, this is the first time we've had an entire episode dedicated to engineering ethics. Okay. Well, you know, in my practice with Texas Instruments over 37 years, I spent a lot of time helping influence the culture of the company, especially it being an engineering company. Electrical engineers are just about everybody in the company, except for me. So I have to, um, warning, I'm not a technical expert but really spent a lot of time with people uh, talking about ethics, getting people to think deeply about what it means to apply the standards that are in the code of ethics of IEEE, for instance. And I think they're a really good starting point. Would you like to start on that, or do you have another idea? No, I think that's great. Let's jump into that. So the IEEE code of ethics includes this, and you all, if you're members of that organization, said this, you uh, certified to this or pledged it. It says, we, the members of the IEEE, do hereby commit ourselves to the highest ethical and professional conduct. And there, there are five, uh, actually six different categories under the list. We commit to do these things. First, it has to do with safety. And I think that's sort of a historical look back to engineering being the type of engineering that builds bridges and makes sure that everybody is safe when they travel over the bridges. Another is advanced the understanding of the capabilities of engineering and the social implications of emerging technologies. That's an interesting one. You pledge that you'll advance that understanding. Other things are avoid conflicts of interest, avoid unlawful conduct and bribery, seek, accept, and offer. This is an interesting one. Honest criticism of technical work. Acknowledge and correct your own errors and credit the contributions of others. Very important in my experience for engineers. That might be the first one that people fail at, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And the last one, to maintain and improve the technical competence. And that is focused on the idea of, of really promoting yourself as expert only in areas where you're really qualified by training or experience. But the question is, it seems to me, how should these 
principles, they're good. I think they're really solid. But how should they play out actually in day-to-day engineering practice? Because there are a lot of issues that come up, uh, ethical issues in electrical engineering. When trust is broken in these areas, it's very difficult to regain it in a workplace and then outside of the company that you're working for. When the trust is broken, it's very difficult to earn back. And I'll just throw out a couple of areas that I've been engaged in, not necessarily with my employer, Texas Instruments, but certainly advising other companies, and in some cases with Texas Instruments. One is theft of ideas, including plagiarism, which erodes trust. You know, your episode 405, you mentioned chat GPT and talking about credit, getting credit for ideas. Very interesting session, by the way. And from an ethical standpoint, at least one of the issues with ChatGPT is pretending to be knowledgeable. <laughs> okay, look at me. Am I? I'm not going to tell anybody that I got the answer from ChatGPT. Some of you are, you know, you guys are probably typing in right now, a bunch of stu- asking ChatGPT for information about the code of ethics. But uh, yeah, the idea that you're putting yourself, and that's a violation of the code of conduct, the ethics that I just mentioned. And I don't know if you have thoughts on that, the theft of ideas and, and plagiarism. Is, is that an issue in workplaces to your, uh, in your experience, or has that not been a big deal? Well, it's interesting because I was going to bring up the use of AI and uh, in terms of is it ethical to lean on AI to provide you information that you are not aware of or that you cannot generate yourself. Mm-hmm. Is it a useful tool or is it a form of plagiarism to use AI? And Park and I have discussed it multiple times in the, well, in the recent past, but but even beyond that, it's been very useful for both of us, but Parker specifically has used it recently to generate some code for some projects that he's working on. Now, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're personal projects and things like that, and they don't have any uh, safety ramifications. It's not like, hey, Chat GPT, build me a bridge, and then you just go and execute whatever it's. Well, design out. me a bridge. Yeah, design me a bridge. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. With a safety factor of five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it gets to determine what safety factor means, and all, yeah. so I. It, it, most of the things that we're talking about here are not. They're gray zones. Everything is always a gray zone when it comes to this because it wouldn't be an issue if it was a gray zone. You would just know what it is. Right. Or you would know the, the answer or solution. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why. I mean, I can't think of uh, an ethical principle that would keep you from using ChatGPT a whole lot as a resource, just like a calculator for Pete's sake. I mean, a computer or doing a Google search. The problem comes in when you pretend that it's your work product. Mm-hmm. In fact, that can really be, you know, it's one of those little lies, and it is a lie to, you know, if you put yourself forth as being so knowledgeable about something when in actuality you're sort of cheating, you know, somebody starts asking questions and you don't have ChatGPT by your side, you're going to be found out. They're going to find out you're not an expert on this because you don't have that depth, and that erodes trust, and that's that's a real problem. But using it and then citing it. See, the problem with plagiarism really comes in when you don't have adequate or appropriate attribution. You don't tell, okay, well, this came from such and such a source. I'm not I'm not making it myself. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, especially with code and um, open source projects. But let's just take a good example, Stack Exchange, which is a, an online form where 
software developers help other software developers with questions and and code and that kind of stuff. The, one of the big like jokes about Stack Exchange is a lot of software development is literally copy pasting from Stack Exchange, which you can and like Chat GPT can write code, and a lot of it is based off of Stack Exchange kind of stuff. So it's like, if you is it so much different than just copying something off Stack Exchange word from word? So what I do is because a lot of times with in Stack Exchange, there's no licensing or anything. Like someone doesn't paste what the license of their code block that they just put there on the website on the on the, yeah. their thread. They don't have a licensing agreement or anything. So it's like what I do is if I use that code, I literally just take the URL and just put it as a comment and be like, this is where I got this block of code from. So that mostly it's for me so that later when something's broken, I can go can return to it. I can turn to it and see if there was like an update or anything. <laughs> but um, that it's one of those areas where like if there's no licensing, what's... Yeah. Well, open source stuff is, is open source, and you can use it. And, and there's an expertise involved in finding the right stuff and then knowing uh, how to kick the tires before you actually just implement it, cut and paste, and let it go, right? So there are some things that this area, you know, is obviously morphing over time. And the question of attribution, do you have to attribute every single time? That's It's more the spirit of the law rather than the the act, which brings up, you know, the the grayness. There there are lots of gray areas here, but some things are, well, for instance, one gray area that we've experienced a lot is siloed cultures. This is an ethical issue, guys, because it tends to feed this disregard for the ultimate impact. In other words, if your responsibility is to make a widget that meets these specifications and you say, okay, that's me. And then somebody else is going to use that widget in an automobile guidance system. And that's them. That's their problem. I'm going to do the widget. We're going to have the widget. It'll meet all the specifications. Everything will be great. But there is a gray area here where you have a siloed culture. And, you know, the quintessential example of that, I think, is the General Motors faulty ignition switch situation. I don't know whether you're familiar with this, but back in 2016... GM got involved in a terrible recall, and it took nine years for them to uncover what the problem was. People were driving off the road and crashing, and the uh, airbags weren't deploying. So they thought first, ah, maybe it's the airbag. Let's talk to the airbag people. No, it wasn't the airbag people. And then they figured that a lot of these had the ignition switch on the accessory mode. And in accessory mode, the airbags don't deploy. But the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, couldn't put this together. And the company self-reported 13 deaths, okay? But later on, when they started peeling the onion, it was hundreds of deaths that were caused by a series of failures. The engineers had learned about these problems with ignition switches way back in 2005, but they didn't fix it because doing so was considered costly and time-consuming. And in the silo, Look, my job is, I did my job perfectly. It makes the spec. You know, I, why do I worry about? So, yes, at first they said the driver error because the drivers had switched it to accessory while they're driving, and so it's their fault, right? But they didn't look at the specs for the torque on the ignition switch. There were specs that were not met. There were they're quite a bit less torque than should be to flip the detent. You know what I mean? To go from... On the accessory. 
it's just easy to now, get to accessibility. Onto accessibility, right. And they also failed to consider that in the end use, some people have long, heavy keychains, and that can affect this as well. And there was also a, a spec problem with vibration. You put all these things together, and what was happening is people were going over bumpy roads with long keychains, and it would flip their thing onto accessory, and the car wouldn't act quite right, and people would get disoriented, and they'd drive off the road, and the airbag wouldn't deploy. This was a big deal. In 2014, uh, Mary Barra came into power in GM, and she hired an attorney to look into this, to conduct an extensive internal investigation. They basically concluded there was no intentional cover-up. But what they said was there was a pattern of incompetence and neglect at the company. And this related to the siloing of the organization. They said if only somebody had stood up and said, wait, maybe there's a connection here between the vibration spec and the torque spec and these accidents. Because, But they didn't do that. They didn't... Uh, even though the lawyers were informed, the lawyers didn't move over to the other department either to tell them, look, there's, there's a problem here and maybe they're related. So, I mean, that's a, that's a cool example, I think, of uh, how that siloed culture in some companies and the pattern of just maniacal focus on meeting this specific component spec rather than having the big picture, as the Code of Ethics talks about, you know, the welfare of human beings, it creates a problem. So I've been talking a lot. I want to get your guys' thoughts, uh, if anything, on that. It's interesting because around that time, 2016, because I'm a big car nerd, is that's when literally, like, where key ignition started going away. Yep. I think Chevy, Chevy GM still kind of uses it in their, like, industrial stuff, but that's small volume compared to passenger vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, some of the smaller, yeah, some of the lower grades still have it. But your your point is well taken because that was part of it. So the Volucas report goes on for like 315 pages and one of the things that they point out is that oh this was a lame duck technology. So they're not going to pour a lot of effort, effort into, into it. Yeah. Tweeting it. And it's just a, the torque is a little bit loose. No big deal, right? And I I can imagine too if you're driving down the road and so what would happen is you know what, I'm going to try this tomorrow in my Chevy that's got key ignition still. What would happen is your engine would turn off, but your dash would still be on. So it would look like your car is still drive, wow. like working correctly, but you're not yeah. getting power steering or brakes or anything like that anymore. Yikes. Yep. Yeah. That's a serious problem. <laughs> Very serious problem. <laughs> and now, and especially when now cars are, are so quiet, most of them you don't even hear the engine run, yeah. when you, especially right. if you're moving down the road. Yeah. But for the ethics side, I was I'm actually surprised that sure they had like lawyers and stuff, but they didn't have like a technical person do a one person go through all the steps of you know going through each department because it sounds like they just went to each department and said, "Is this a problem? Can y'all replicate this in your silo?" Instead of one person going through each one and collecting all the data, a technical person and then putting it all together. You absolutely nailed it there. They didn't have anybody looking over the entire process and putting the pieces together. And this happens. This happens in maybe less dramatic ways. FMEAs, I think, are an area for ethics that relates to this, the whole concept. If you have a culture that is a gotcha culture, 
that the engineer who made the mistake gets blamed, okay? You really fouled this up and it cost the company a bunch of money. If you have that kind of a culture, then there will be a built-in incentive to formulate your failure mode effects analyses in a way that deflect errors. For instance, some problems you guys are well aware can be solved by a, a software workaround, but really they, they may be caused predominantly by a hardware problem. Well, okay, this is an FMEA, it's a failure of the software. So we're gonna tweak the software, so I'm not to blame uh, the designer of the hardware. That, I mean, super simplistic, but that is, uh, that is a problem. Uh, problems go undiagnosed because engineers just don't wanna bear blame. And that's one of the, one of the principles that I shared earlier from the, from the code of, uh, of ethics. You know, something that's going through my mind right now is all throughout college, engineers are judged on how they hit their specification. This exam says, hit these specifications and you get a number zero to 100% on how well you did. And then you get into the real world and you start getting projects. And at the beginning of the year, your, your boss says, hey, I need you to write goals for this year. And your goals a lot of times tend to be like, I'm going to prove how I hit all of these specifications and did it on time and under budget and blah, blah, blah. But what we're mentioning here is completely external to that. And in so many ways, there's, there's a lot of these decisions that happened, especially in design that we don't even know the impacts because we just discussed them in a meeting. Say, let's just say at, at GM, somebody was in a meeting and says like, oh, hey guys, I noticed that the torque spec is a little low. Let's just bump it up a little bit. And everyone said, sure. And then they did it and they avoided this disaster. An engineer wouldn't necessarily get praised for that or that wouldn't get, you know, maybe there's an attaboy that shows up because you, you suggested a higher torque spec. Whereas if you didn't do that, it could have resulted in the hundreds of deaths, right? Right. Well, now there is a flip side to that, Stephen. What would happen is marketing would push back and say, hey, our users exactly. don't like how much it takes to turn this key. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> and the bean counters will say, look, it just costs too much to revamp the, the ignition switch. It's going <laughs> to cost too much. Especially if it's end of life in terms of... It's end of life. It's a... It's a minor problem, but yeah. It does make you think, how many landmines do we miss that we're not even aware of? Right. Where we're just sitting in a meeting where it's like, oh, let's change this or do this. And that could result in, uh, that change could have saved lives and you didn't even know it. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, Stephen, you know, you, you brought up the tyranny of the spec, and I think that's a big issue that raises ethical challenges for electrical engineers all the time. And another example, boy, hard to, sorry to pick on the automobile industry so much, but the Volkswagen cheater devices. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the TDI diesels. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is an amazing thing. That again was nine year period when Volkswagen was achieving results in its diesel emissions that were 40 times better than they should have been if you look at the system. And nobody else in the industry was able to achieve those results without extensive hardware. You know, a, a special uh, blue Def. tech yeah, thing, D, you yeah. know, you're, yeah. yeah, yeah. So how is it that nobody, over that period of time, there must have been multiple people coming into the departments that were looking at this and then out and coming back and forth. How come nobody raised the question, how are we doing this? How is this even possible? And the way it was possible is somebody intentionally in that case, boy, they were going to meet that spec 
of passing the emissions test. That's the spec. We're going to meet that spec. How can you do that? Well, you know, we can just do the software. It's going to be, it's going to mimic the thing actually driving in a certain way, and it's going to cheat. It's going to trick the testing system in order to gain. That is an example where a lot of the commentators are saying it was driven by this maniacal focus on a goal, the cheap way to meet that spec of, of emissions. So it went on nine years. It only would have taken one person to stand up and say, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense at all. Show me how this is being accomplished. They would have avoided enormous billions of dollars of impact. Their CEO had to resign. It was a, just a mess for their reputation, Volkswagen's reputation. Uh, fines, reparations, it was just a huge mess. I don't know... There was something that basically that came out of the VW stuff where basically what was so like all the other companies were like, well, how is Volkswagen doing it? And they basically figured out, at least this is what the allegations were. They basically figured out that they were cheating it and they all just started cheating. <laughs> I don't know if that ever went all the way through. That was back in yeah. 28. That was 2018, 2019. I don't know what happened to that yet. Cause that, you know, that kind of stuff takes a lot of time to unravel itself, but well, there was, there were allegations that BMW did as well. Oh yeah. BMW, uh, Mercedes yep, yep, was, yep. so yeah. So the, actually I think basically they all got, they figured out what VW was doing and then ended up all just kind of copying, what a, what a crazy which, is in, which is interesting. So they didn't even ring the bell though. Their competitors didn't call them out for it. No. Well, because they were trying to meet the specifications yeah. And uh, what's interesting is it's all passenger vehicles, whereas there's different emission standards for trucks and trucks weren't really affected by this. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's real interesting. As your example is great. I mean, it's just the pressure was even on. Look, VW is doing this and they don't have all this extra equipment that they have to and, and bothering consumers. Consumers don't want to bother with uh, that blue. What was it? Blue Tech or something? It, blue Tech's the, uh, one of the brands. Yeah. It's Urea. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You normally don't so, want uh, Really side topic. So Good. most vehicles in, in the United States, we don't have a lot of diesel besides like trucks, basically. And they usually just put the def filler is like. It's a different size and it's like next to the gas tank. So you can like fill up your mm -hmm. diesel and you can fill up your def. Yeah. So in, in Europe, they have a lot of smaller diesels and some of them, you put the def inside, like you open up your, it's Europe. So it'd be your, well, I guess Britain too. It would be your boot. You'd open up your boot and you'd put your def in there. So you're pouring what's basically pee into your vehicle. <laughs> and so spills happen and then it smells. For passenger vehicles, DEF is not a good solution, right? which is, makes sense why they were trying to cheat it. And that's another thing. I mean, it's the pressure of the buying public. The buying public doesn't want to be bothered with certain things. And engineers are prevailed upon by the management. Well, it's often it's the, the silo of sales and marketing versus the engineering folks or <laughs> it's 
they're selling. Oh, yeah, we can do that. We can do it cheaper than anybody else. Well, VW is doing it cheaper than you. Wow, we'll do it. We'll figure it out somewhere. The, I, it's the tyranny of the spec. Those silos, sales and engineering, are so far apart from each other that they can't even see each other. Right. Uh, and there's a Grand Canyon in between sales and engineering. I, I don't know how it is. There's just something fundamental about the, the human mind of sales and engineering that they just mix like oil and water. And I, I, I've never understood it. But every place I've worked has been the same. Well, this is an ethical issue, frankly. And, and it happens with the quality department as well. Large companies have their quality departments. And, oh, no, we got a quality audit. Oh, gosh. And you know that principle that I just read to you all uh, talks about accountability. It really, between the lines, it's talking about accountability and the willingness to accept criticism and to change. The attitude of most, well, I say most, I, I shouldn't say that, many engineering departments, when the auditors, when the quality auditors show up is, okay, don't tell them anything, just give them the bare minimum to answer their questions. So it's sort of like, you know, when you're a witness at a trial, typically the lawyer will say, don't answer any question unless it's specifically asked, zip the lip, you know. That kind of an attitude is what leads to the kinds of problems that we're talking about with GM. You know, I don't want to cast any aspersions on my colleagues, and I just want to go along to get along. And the quality people come in, I'm just, I'm not going to talk to them about the, you know, the minor miss on this torque spec or whatever. It's a real temptation. And what it comes down to is, you know, if just a few, this doesn't have to be the CEO of the company, although it sure helps if you have a CEO demanding a culture, but it takes one person to blow the whistle and then the company up obliged to, to look into it more deeply. Hmm. You can avoid a lot of problems. So earlier we were talking about AI and like autonomous vehicles and that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is there is a, I think it's IBM. And IBM back in the 80s, I have to find the, the, the they have a basic document. I think it was, it was like ethics for engineering. It wasn't on ethics, but it was for the engineering team where it's a computer will never get sued. It's always the people. Like a computer can't get sued because the computer is programmed to do what a human told it to do. Now we're getting into the realm of nowadays where ChatGPT, AI, autonomous vehicles, but like AI in general, where it becomes non-deterministic of what it's going to do. That's kind of a big ethical problem that we still haven't really figured out yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the obligation of the human being, obviously, is, as we said before, to kick the tires of anything that comes out of AI. But as AI gets better and better, the uh, state of the art is getting so good and so superior to what we can fumble around and come up with ourselves that... Uh, Things are changing. You're exactly right. It's like what with the the current autonomous vehicles, they get around. Get around is not a right term for it, but the person needs to have their hands at least on the wheel, right? That's like the idea. Right. But then there's the ethical. It's assisted. Yeah, yeah. But there's the, also the ethical is people sell defeat mechanisms that detect if your hands on yeah. the wheel. <laughs> yeah. So, but engineers design those defeat methods. <laughs> because <laughs> like it uses uh pressure sensors or something like that or like it detects the capacitance of the human body on the wheel or something like that right but there's devices that basically clamp onto the wheel that defeat that detection right and so it's like well right. 
Whoever designed that, <laughs> is that ethical or not? <laughs> you know, you can you can tape a bottle on your steering wheel with a little bit of water on it, mm-hmm. and it'll think that your hands are on it and everything. It'll go self-driving for a minute. Oh, it, it, it only takes uh, that much. Bad example. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's tongue in cheek. The uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This brings up the whole area of minimum viable product. I know you guys have talked about MVP before. Mm-hmm. What is a minimum minimum viable product? You know, and actually, ChatGPT could probably come up with a minimum, depending on what your definition is. And what are the criteria that ought to be applied to determine whether something's minimum? If the criteria is just the numbers, okay, it meets these, it's going to pass the, the test, you know, it's, going to, it's got the specs that'll pass the test. It really bears on that question. Uh, you know, ISO 26262 in the uh, automotive realm is a terrific resource for forcing engineers, electrical engineers especially, to think about the systems into which their components are being used. But that's not a um, that's not a one time thing because a lot of the things that you guys create, uh, the boards that you put together, they can potentially be used for other purposes as well. They might meet the minimum viable product criterion for, you know, I don't know, a, a entertainment device, but they don't meet the minimum viable product requirement for a pacemaker or for a guidance system. You know, so part of it is training ourselves to think bigger picture. What might this be misused in? And if you learn that it's being misused and it's a huge market, boy, you can sell a gajillion of these things for this other use. And then you've guard banded the testing, right? So it probably ought to work, you know, sort of. So you're going to blow the whistle. You're going to say, wait or not. It's a gray area. And we need to be, you know, we need to be circling our engineers, especially in major companies, but small ones too. Gosh, just let's think about these things. And I'm not saying that there's an absolute right or wrong answer, but we at least need to be giving some thought to the peripheral impact of, you know, what we're calling a minimum viable product. Does that make sense? It, it does, but it brings up the question, thinking about that, doesn't get us to the deadline of the project that we're having to get to right now. And I've got <laughs> and I've got sales banging on my door. I've got the president saying, "Hey, where is this?" I've got I've got everyone questioning it and and thinking about that. Although, you know, it sounds fantastic, it 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 doesn't move the ball forward on the project. I'm not saying don't do it, just saying practically it's difficult to do this. And and yeah, you're being realistic. Yeah, being realistic cuz it's I think a good example is uh, drones with like, let's say the Ukrainian war right now and Hmm. hobby drones. No one thought to decide to put a claymore on one (laughs) until about two years ago. And is that something that like now you have to, if have to decide what happens if someone decides to strap a, is that, is that something that we should be worried about? Or think about when we're doing the MVP, or is that just way too far out? Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question, right? I mean, we're, how speculative do we have to be? I mean, somebody can, you know, you make semiconductors with sensors that are really good at creating blasting caps that, that go off exactly the right time to implode a building. Well, boy, that for sure can be used by terrorists. Does that mean you don't manufacture the product? No, 
But it, it does mean that you think about these things and how they might be misused. And maybe, you know, the big one of the big questions is, uh, and Stephen, you're probably familiar with this, uh, probably Parker as well, is the whole question of how a semiconductor product or a board will be classified for export control purposes. Okay? Yeah, ITAR. Well, you, you begin, ITAR, yeah, International Traffic and Arms Regulation. So, you know, boy, do you want to, you're an engineer, do you want to even raise that that possibility to anyone that, gee, maybe this thing could be misused, if so. You know, and then you're demonstrating, you want to demonstrate commercial use so, to, so as to avoid the, um, the possibility it's an ITAR-listed item. Well, if you know that it's very readily used for nefarious purposes, it's a it's a question. I'm not giving you the answer. <laughs> I don't have the answer. It's a gray area. But it ought to be thought about. Somebody ought to think about it. Yeah, it, it's another funny idea on that is the Tesla Roadster. And one of those became a satellite and is around like the sun right now. <laughs> right. And it's like, does, did the engineers decide or when they were originally designing the Tesla Roadster ever envision one being strapped to a rocket and being sent up? <laughs> yeah. Not as nefarious purposes, but it's kind of like a, no. it's just a weird, um, I bet you, I bet you, Steven, none of those components would are satellite grade. Oh, guaranteed not. <laughs> not, not even slightly. <laughs> Yeah, they're probably not going to be doing a lot of driving of that vehicle in space, though. I, guess. I don't know. Did they think that perhaps someday that might strike something and be a problem? Well, that, that was at the time when that happened. A lot of people were complaining about that possibility. I mean, Im- imagine if, if 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 the roadster, you know, plowed through the ISS and just completely destroyed the the space station. Uh, that uh, the the I don't know the blowback from that would have been monumental. I'm going to. Assume the FAA, well, they have to first clear the rocket launch, but I bet you they got clearance on what the trajectory of the Roadster would have been from like NASA. Oh, 100%. And yeah, got it yeah. cleared. So it makes sure it wasn't going to You can't just shoot random that. stuff into space. Like, yeah, from yeah. your backyard. <laughs> I mean, that would be cool if we got to that point as a, as a society and human race. Although didn't, didn't Virgin Galactic get in trouble for doing that? Uh, something similar to that, sending up their ship, which was technically classified as at least its altitude was low space and they didn't get authorization from the FAA. I, I, I believe that there were some pretty significant issues with that. And and yeah, I, I guess the issue is that they didn't clear it even though there wasn't any problems. In fact, that's an eth- ethical thing to, to really consider. Mm-hmm. You do something, it doesn't cause any problems, so what? Who cares? It you know, I didn't hurt anyone. I, no, nothing bad mm-hmm. happened about it. And if anything, it was good marketing. <laughs> well, but that's a good that's a good example of the way that you can lose trust. Yeah. In other words, oh, if you're skirting the rules, even if there wasn't anything wrong in the end, it could have been could have been something wrong. So you really really are losing trust there. Well, most of, you know, most of this rolls of these, up into could have been right. Right. Yeah. This is all avoiding probabilities. A a bigger, probably more practical example would be vehicles where they almost every single vehicle that's manufactured can go faster than like any speed limit on the on the planet Earth. And so it's like, is that a problem as a designer to build a let's say from let's say you work at Ferrari, you're you're an engineer at Ferrari and you're building a car that can go 200 miles an hour. 
there's no legal road in the entire planet that you can drive down except for like a private roads, right? But you're selling it to just people. Is that, that that's a is that an ethical problem? Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this reminds me so much of the product liability cases that I've counseled and I've been involved in. I, I never was a litigator, but I was there, you know, in the courtroom and that kind of thing. And the big emphasis is on, you know, what did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do about it, of course? And in that, there's a recognition. The law recognizes wisely that nothing is perfect, that there is some degree of risk in everything. And it's part of the job of an engineer is to risk assess. There are things that can go wrong. And you guys were talking recently about end of life where there's an aging process and it goes back to entropy. You know, that happens. But the callous disregard of those types of issues is what gets you most in trouble. That's where you have punitive damages of billions of dollars against GM, for instance. It's, just it's that callous disregard, which drives me to the, the proposition that we need to do more thinking, I think, in the engineering community about, about these things, about... How do you create a culture that communicates and doesn't blame? Like, okay, where I feel free to say, well, you know, I've neglected to identify this potential failure mode and it could be catastrophic. You know, I'm sorry, but okay, you're blackballed. You've raised a big issue. We don't want to hear about that. That's exactly the wrong culture, right? A culture of respect and listening. And then the other side of it is where you get the Sky is falling, guys, who come out and say, oh, my gosh, everything's going to crash and burn. And, and they're, So you have to have a degree of balance there. You're not required to come out with a space-grade component for a Tesla. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the culture is a big issue. And engineers don't talk much, in my experience, about culture. <laughs> you know, that's actually an interesting point because it's – the it's kind of the exact opposite in software development where if there is a you know you didn't think about something and there's an exploit a software developer is like oh we need to fix that like right away right and roll out fixes and get everything and uh notify the right party most of the time sometimes that doesn't happen especially with like security breaches Mm. that's a different problem yes but like actual software bugs like there was an ssh bug a while back etc etc where kind of like the software engineering and development community work really hard on fixing those problems as fast as they can. Yes. And it's kind of like the opposite in, in, no. in engineering in terms of uh, like just most engineering disciplines. It's, it is different. Yeah. It's difficult. That's a really good point, Parker, though. I do. Th- I think you're right that there is a difference of culture when you're dealing with software to an extent, but add this to the equation and tell me what you think. You produce a product that goes to an OEM and the OEM incorporates it. You identify a software problem that could have bad results. Do you tell the customer that? Well, boy, yeah, you better. So you tell the customer that. Customer tells you, I don't want to hear that stuff. No, go away. I'm going to continue to produce these things. So you say, okay, but I've got to do a recall on my component. But if I do the recall on my component, people are going to learn that you have potentially dangerous or faulty or whatever components in your systems. So I'm just saying Mm -hmm. a situation like that adds a layer of complexity that's difficult. And unless you have that culture that goes not just 
within the software community, but that expands out to the wider community, you're going to have problems. Oh, yeah. Oh, and you're just talking well, about a situation with one one layer of hierarchy, one one subcontractor. <laughs> yeah. Think of if it goes many layers deep, you, you start getting lots yes. of people involved. That's right. That's right. And what we're calling for is sort of a, a revamp of human nature. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just gonna- That's everybody. Park your thick, have thick skin, but tender heart. You know, <laughs> just snap your finger and there you go. You've been remade. It reminds me of the example of, let's say, microcontrollers and let's say microchips or anyone. I'm not going to name uh, company A. They go, well, we got a hardware problem. So we're going to release, release an errata data sheet. <laughs> and then they literally just don't tell anyone that that data sheet even exists. At oh, all. They don't tell right. anyone. Oh, yeah. And you'll be struggling for a long time trying to figure out why you have this weird bug. And you go, oh, it's in the errata. But it'd be nice if like, if you had the part and then they let you know, hey, there's a problem with this thing. Here's the new data sheets. They never tell you. That's an excellent example. I've seen that happen time and again. You just issue it. Oh, we'll, we'll fix this. We'll technically go on the record to, that it's, there's an errata, you know, under these circumstances. And here's the workaround or something. But nobody notices errata. Yeah. That sounds like washing your hands. You wash your hands. You're clean. I'm pure. I've, yes. I've, well, I've fixed yes. the problem. It's up to you. It goes back to the siloing problem. It now it now right. meets the component that didn't meet specification now meets specifications because we changed the specification. That's right. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not quite as fast as we said. Are we? Well, no, we won't say that. We'll just issue an errata. Well, that was a mistake. It was just a an error. And that brings up the whole question of what's intentional and what is just a mistake, because it can be legitimate just oops, gotchas. But if you try to hide the solution, it looks like you were, you know, I mean, a cover-up is worse in some cases than the actual perpetrated event. You know, you look at Bill Clinton and, you know, his cover-up was what destroyed him. If he had fessed up and said that he was, you know, doing illicit activities in the Oval Office, it wouldn't have been as bad as when he was, you know, covering it up and saying, I did not this and that, you know what I mean? Depends on what you mean by is, right? (laughs) Depends what the definition of is. The definition, yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, okay, so, so what I'm kind of gathering is your posture, your mentality, and your actions matter the most as opposed to necessarily the outcome when it comes to how ethical issues are handled. How you approach them and how you solve them is more important than necessarily the solution itself. Yep, how you think about them, how you seek to anticipate problems and document them. And that's a tricky thing. You know, lawyers say, oh, gee, don't put it in writing. But really in this arena... It's good to demonstrate that you thought about it and considered it. Unless you want a paper trail of you thinking about it, right? Very interesting, isn't it? I mean, all of this is risk-reward kind of, you know, what is the magnitude of the bad event that might happen and weigh that against the likelihood. The likelihood is extremely small. I mean, like infinitesimally small, but the, the outcome, uh, very devastating. Those are the difficult cases, right? Uh, but having 
Having done that, some defense lawyers will tell you, oh gosh, never put a dollar sign on a, an issue that relates to safety. Well, that's ridiculous. Everything relates. I mean, there's so much now that relates to safety. They have, you shouldn't put a dollar amount on it as much as you should put, demonstrate that you've thought through the implications. Uh, you've done, you, the question is reasonable care. And that's the ethical question as well, because perfection is not achieved in this life. <laughs> it's a matter of did you exercise reasonable care under the circumstances as a company? And then if something goes wrong, it's despite the exercise of reasonable care, you should not be held liable. <laughs> so, honestly, sounds like a decent bit of legalese there. <laughs> All it is. Sounds like a lot, of, a lot of words that have explicit definitions behind them. That's true. But uh, this is one of the rare cases where the legal profession actually has something to offer. Yeah in the area of risk assessment, I think. You know, one other thing I wanted to touch on is actually the ethics of not being aware of something. Uh, we mentioned uh, previously, in fact, the words you used, I believe, was uh, the tyranny of specifications. I want to touch on the, the idea that you may not know all the specifications that you need to know, mm. and you still trudge forward, what happens when you do find out that these things become a specification? How do you handle those situations? That's, that's an excellent point because then things change. The whole landscape changes when something comes to your attention that you hadn't thought of before. Now you have that knowledge. And again, as I said in the product liability question, when did you learn about it and what did you do about it? And when in GM's case, they heard about it in 2005, they didn't do a blame thing about it until 2014. This is a big problem. It changes the equation when you learn more information. Of course, over time, you're going to learn more and more. If you don't know, you know, the idea, the, the framework is exercise reasonable care under the circumstances. So the reasonable care is anticipating as best you can, writing down the safeguards, the, uh, the um, you know, building in redundancy in the system in order to avoid, you know, to dramatically lessen risk and things like that. But then something comes up out of the blue you just didn't know. That's when you need to uh, address these questions. Are you going to have a recall? Are you going to force your customer to have a recall? Is your reputation going to be enhanced if you do it straight up? Or if you just presume, well, gee, the probabilities are small that maybe we'll just be quiet and hunker down and hope nobody notices that we're doing nothing in spite of being informed of a problem. Hmm. I submit to you the latter is a, is a ticket to distrust and disaster in the long term for a company. Companies need to have a long-term perspective on this. They're building a reputation, and that can be destroyed very easily. You know, fessing up to your mistakes is a terrific way you know, you think about it with your relationship with your spouse. You know, if you fess up quick, you're going to be, she's going to be mad, or mad at you, or he, he's going to be mad at you for for a while. But it's much better than having the spouse find out about it later. Uh, that that destroys a relationship. You know, it brings up the classic uh, the Ford Pinto issue with the gas tanks, yes. where right. that was the famous putting a dollar amount on a safety item. Yeah. And that and that, that was what kind of ruined Ford's reputation for a while. It took him a long time to get around Absolutely. that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that was a, a blatant uh, case where, I mean, it was just pennies. If I remember correctly, it was pennies. Yeah. Maybe a buck or two bucks to put the the gas tank in a position where it wouldn't be so explosive. Yeah. Well, it was, or, I mean, that, or, I mean, the fix was uh, they would put a rubber liner basically in the gas tank. And that would yeah, okay. It. And yeah. it was the <laughs> someone at, at Ford made the decision, well, the lawsuits cost this much, but the rubber liner cost this much. Mm. And that was, and that that got leaked out, and that was the end of it. Well, at the at the end of the day, you know, discovery is an amazing thing in the legal process. You get all the paperwork, all of the emails, all of the communications, texts, everything that's that's retrievable. They get, and what kind of character is going to be exhibited in your engineering department when all of that comes to light? I think it's healthy to think of your communications as being as if you were putting them out into the blogosphere. It ensures or it, it kind of keeps you from doing some things that you wouldn't otherwise do. Well, we see how people act on social media, so it doesn't stop some people. <laughs> That's true. Good point. So, so I have a bit of an example I want to I want to give. Just maybe in our last few minutes, we can talk about this because I think this is a practical example uh, that I've seen actually quite a few people run into, and it's it's issues with your product that you're designing in the FCC. I've run into people who have a successful business; they've built multiple products, and they are actively selling these products. And then they find later on that they were supposed to have FCC testing on all of these products. Oh, yeah. And then going and doing research on it, they realize, if I have to go through this, this will bankrupt my company if I go and actually get this. Now, they know just generally general engineering principles, their product would pretty much pass. So the stuff they've been selling hasn't been an issue. And their clients don't care whatsoever if it has an FCC stamp on it or not. What is, what is their course of action? Do they give up their company and bankrupt their company because, because it's an ethical issue? That they, or do they just continue on selling it knowing that it's probably not an issue? If you're asking me, <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really tough one. I got to admit, that is a very tough of situation. You're postulating that if tested, it would not be interfere so much that it would be a problem. But that usually is a guesstimate, and that's therein lies the biggest ethical problem. There's a legal problem, but there's also the ethical problem. You know, how sure are you that it would meet the requirements if you went through the process? The fact that all that stuff is out there, yeah, I mean, that's a tough... I'm not going to really venture on that. <laughs> it, uh, it's it's tough, too, because it's really easy to go on Amazon and just find some random Chinese PCB right. and incorporate it into your product because it solves all of your problems and it's a dollar, and it, but it's not tested. And it, how do you handle those kinds of situations? And that comes up in a number of places where you don't agree with the requirements. You think the requirements are superfluous and ridiculous. Why should I have to jump through a hoop on this thing? I, you know... Why should I test it with one foot lifted and then my hand up in the air? It doesn't really make any difference, but the requirement says to do that. And those situations raise ethical questions concerning the requirements, but they're tough. I don't have all the answers. I'm sorry, Parker, you were going to say something. No, is um, that would be a very interesting market to this is me this is me being a co-founder right now. Very interesting market to disrupt would be like FCC testing. 
and being able to figure out how to provide that service for cheaper so you don't bankrupt these, I love it. these OEMs. I love it. You're exercising your engineering know-how to, to deliver something that's valuable to humanity and everything. Oh, good job. Because yeah. <laughs> I've done a lot of FCC testing, and it's, it's really yeah. expensive. I know. And especially if you don't get it right the first time because you never do. Mm-hmm. And that's that goes back to Stephen's thing. It's like if you think it's okay, but if you actually test, and we know because Stephen, because you got stuff FCC tested. How many times have you got it on the first shot? I can't think of a time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's not a problem. <laughs> but you know, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think there are there are some situations. I mean, the FCC rules in terms of what is required to be tested can involve things where you have a really high confidence level that your product would pass because yes, it doesn't, it, yes, it, it passes the threshold of it must be tested, but it doesn't emit. It's, it's really low power. It's blah, blah, blah. All of these things that, that would that, that you're very confident it would pass. Yeah. Is it an ethical issue to sell that product without testing? I, my argument is absolutely hundred percent. Yeah, I think it is. But uh, it is, and if it comes to light, it can look bad for the company. But then, you know, there are always corner cases. You know, I sit in the airplane and they say, turn all your things to airplane mode. I wonder how many people actually put it to airplane If they don't put it to airplane mode, is the plane going to have a problem? Are they going to have any Yeah, you, lo- really? you lose your door. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I question the causality connection there. <laughs> I, I've actually heard that they implemented that rule, not necessarily for the airplane, but for cell towers. Just so as you're flying by, you're not pinging cell towers over and over and over very, very rapidly, which causes, could cause issues. Now, I may be completely wrong with that. I've just heard that before. Uh, I think the Mythbusters had a whole episode about would it affect airplane controls and and systems, and they concluded no. But also, that's just a show on (laughs) Discovery. (laughs) It's not an official test. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I hope this has been helpful, guys. And I know I threw a a number of things that are in the gray area up there, but I do think what's important is that engineers wrestle with those kinds of questions, that they not just, you know, go after the spec and and meet the tyranny of the spec. And um, if we do that, in a reasonable way, we'll be much better off. It does sound like a really good potential solution or helpful solution is when you do have problems, let's say like GM, for example, is it might, especially with a company that big, is you might have a either a third party or a, uh, I'm always a big fan of third parties or uh, reducing, mm-hmm. my biggest thing is is reducing conflict of interests Yes. I think I've talked to Steven about that all the time. Yeah. It's my number one thing is is reducing that and uh, hiring a third party to investigate or having a dedicated team whose goal is that. Because that's, again, I'm going back to software development is or insecurity mm-hmm. is you have certain teams like red team, blue team who are there to break systems and those and people there to detect intrusions. But when you look at like the bottom line, those people are just burning money. They don't huh. sell product. <laughs> so uh, uh-huh. it's really hard to justify that kind of expense for companies. And when you do it, you have to watch out for the rivalry and the distrust. Yes. And how people, oh no, the quality guys here again, they're going to audit me. And oh, what a pain in the neck is a waste of time. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. 
thank you so much, Kent, for coming on our podcast. This was a great discussion. My pleasure. It's good talking with you guys. For those interested in learning more about Kent, you know, we actually didn't even get into this topic. Maybe maybe this is something for the future, but uh, please visit religiousfreedomandbusiness.org. All one word, right? Yep. Yep. So perhaps in the future, we'll have you back on to talk about that because that's a completely different aspect of your life, a completely different form of it. Is, but it's related. Yeah. The whole uh, diversity <laughs> part of your career, we didn't even touch. So no. we'll have you back on definitely to discuss that kind of stuff. Happy to do that. Great. Thank you so much. All right. So also, also Kent, if um, we have a form where we have our listeners discuss the podcast, if people have questions, post them in there. It's circuit-break.macrofab.com, I think. Yeah, that's right. We need something easier for that. <laughs> we, we really do. <laughs> yeah. And we'll pass them along to Kent or Kent if you want to just show up there and discuss it as well. It's totally awesome. But, okay, uh, I'll do it. Yeah, so thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast. Thank you, Kent. So that was Circuit Break from Macrofab. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you, our listener, for downloading and listening to our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. We have circuit-break.macfab.com. Come join the discussion. <laughs>